being with us or here with us this morning and you're without a Bible, we sure want you to have a Bible to read along with us uh, today. And there are men coming up the aisle right now if you just with Bibles and if you just flag them down with your hand, they'll spot you and uh, get a Bible into your hands. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We pick things up in verse 13, and Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, that is, that have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge all of the comfort that is bound up in these handful of verses simply because your word tells us that's what's there. We pray that as we would study your word this morning and not on our own, Lord, but just in fellowship with your Holy Spirit in this room today and in our lives today, that you would teach us about this great comfort that is ours in this great future event in each one of our lives that knows you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us and lead us and teach us by your Holy Spirit and your word today. We want it to be a supernatural time. We always want our time in your word to be a supernatural event. We pray, Lord, for the men that are finishing up the men's retreat up at Pinecrest, and we ask that you would put those perfect finishing touches on that retreat and on each one of their lives today. And we pray today, Lord, for the larger body of Christ here in Modesto, how we love the whole body of Christ. And we ask that everywhere that your word is being opened up and you're being worshipped by people who love you all over this city, that you would just meet powerfully with them, Lord. Would you strengthen and, and equip the body of Christ today in this city and then make us more influential for you, Lord, and, and for the kingdom of God. And the, in the great need of the city that we live in. And we ask these things of you. Pray these things to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The last couple of Sunday mornings we've been studying uh, the signs of what the Bible s- declares concerning what the Bible calls the last days or the latter times. And how this very, very fallen world that we live in and uh, all of the governments of man, all of even the individual rebellion of human hearts is one day going to be brought to an end in this world. 
when Jesus himself returns and he establishes his kingdom uh, in this world. And the Old Testament scriptures uh, spoke of uh, Jesus in his first coming, uh, and he came just as they had declared as a suffering Savior. In his second coming, he's going to come as a conquering king. And the last couple of weeks, we've studied what the Bible declares will be the geopolitical condition of the world in the last days, in terms of the Middle East, also in terms of Europe. And in the course of those two studies, we've talked about this thing called the rapture, and that's what I want to talk about specifically this morning. And all of it in preparation for next week, being able to return to what our larger series is, and that is the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and getting into specifically where we are in that chronology, and that is his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, where he gives us his priceless uh, insights related to the last days prior to his uh, return. Now, when I talk about the rapture of the church, that's a subject that is very, very familiar to many of you, and, and then, you know, others of us in the room don't even have the foggiest idea what that is. So there's a lot, a, a lot on two extremes and a lot in the middle. So uh, we'll be patient with one another and we'll have a lot of fun studying this uh, this morning. The Bible teaches that one day a great tribulation is going to come upon this world. Let me give you Jesus' as a description of it. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Now remember, this world has experienced a worldwide flood. Uh, world wars. I mean, this world has seen a lot of difficulty and tribulation. This is something that exceeds it all. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Let me translate that for you. Whatever this great tribulation period is, you don't want to be there. And the wonderful thing about it is nobody needs to be there. But it's really, really serious business. It's going to be a time, the Bible declares, when God pours his wrath out upon this world, a world that will at that point in time be made up of those that have rejected God and more specifically rejected the salvation that is found in his Son. And this time is spoken of as a time of God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, writing to Christians, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. The kings of the earth, and this occurs right at the beginning of the tribulation period. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, 
every slave, every free man, hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What do you got to do to make a lamb that angry? We're doing it all over this world. We're poking God in the eye with a stick. For the great day, returning to Revelation, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, in each of those verses, the Greek word that was used for the word wrath is the same, and it's the Greek word orge. And uh, most uh, English-speaking people... We use the word uh, anger and we use the word wrath interchangeably almost. Or we think that they are much the same thing, uh, only, you know, just differentiated by degree. Somebody's angry, all right, that guy's angry. But when somebody's filled with wrath, we just think that that's someone just that's angrier than you can describe with the word angry. But that's not really how the word is used, is, is God uses it to describe himself uh, in the Bible. The word anger, and it is used often in the Bible, is the word thumos. And it refers to an agitated anger. It refers to an explosive anger. We talk about somebody being hot-tempered, where somebody gets angry in a flash, and, and then almost as quickly they're calmed down and they're, they're back to normal. That's, uh, that's thumos. That's not the word that's used uh, for God here. The word that's used for God's wrath in the Great Tribulation is the word orge, and it refers to a wrath or something that builds up in a person over a long period of time. And orge is much more lasting, longer lasting in its expression than thumos is. And because it has been much longer in building up, uh, orge or wrath is much longer in its expression, much more patient in its expression, much more thorough in its expression. Orge is not satisfied with a quick flash of expression and then it goes away. It is built up over too long of a period of time to be expressed that quickly. So this orge that speaks of the wrath of God being poured out during the great tribulation, uh, the wrath that God does pour out, uh, there's no hot-headedness uh, to it at all. Now, the Bible teaches that God watches this world. In fact, the Bible teaches that He ponders. Not only does He know everything, not only does he see everything that happens on every square inch of this world every single day, not only does he hear every word that all six billion people say every single day, but he then ponders what he sees. He ponders what he hears. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of man's paths. And the word ponder means to weigh mentally. He watches everything. He observes everything. He weighs everything. Nothing escapes his attention. He's absorbing all of it. 
Now you can imagine, you, well, we can only try to imagine. Imagine what he sees every day in this world. Doesn't miss anything. Not in Modesto. Multiply it times what? I don't even want to know what he hears. I don't even like watching the previews to the new movies. I don't want to know that much about the movies. There's stuff that I see previews for, and I just think if someone sits down in front of that for two hours and gets up and walks out and thinks that they're a normal human being, they're not a normal human being. That's a movie about the reality. I don't want to know what God sees every day. I can't imagine what He hears every day. And I don't possess His holiness. I don't possess... His love, I don't know what he sees and what he hears, what that does to his holiness and what it does to his love. The victims of sin, persecution of his children. And to be a perfectly holy God, pondering the ways of sinful man, well, that's going to produce an emotion in you. And the emotion that it produces is wrath. And one day he's going to rise up and he's going to pour out his wrath upon this world, a wrath that has been building against all of its sin and all of its pride and all of its arrogance and all of its uh, rebellion of, uh, of man against God for thousands of years. Now, it, it appears that in this pondering that, and in this observing that the Lord is watching for something. He's watching for something as he watches everything go on. And the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans exactly what that something is. And that something is the fullness of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul said, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a day coming in the history of planet Earth where there is going to be some Gentile, non-Jew, that is going to be saved... They're going to answer to an altar call in a place like this or they're going to be watching Charles Stanley on TV and receive the Lord or listening to a radio program or they're going to kneel and pray with a relative in someone's living room. But somewhere, the final Gentile, the final person that God knows will be saved prior to pouring out and un, uh, giving forth now the, and beginning the great trib, the tribulation period, he'll know that's the last one that's going to get saved, and then he will launch a period of tribulation upon the world. And, and when that last person is sa- saved, he'll rise up in his wrath, and he's going to judge the earth. And then at the same time, he's going to finish something among the Jews that he began a long time ago, that he hasn't finished yet. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 77s. Now when God pours out his wrath, he doesn't express 
his wrath in some kind of a wild, ugly way. Usually when we see people get angry and, and wrathful, it's just, some, you know, you're just embarrassed by, they're just, they've lost complete control and what are they doing? And they're going to be so ashamed of this a little bit later on. And, and so often, you know, man as he expresses his anger and his wrath in a fleshly way, a sinful way, is very ugly to look at. But God doesn't operate that way. His wrath will be very measured, it will be very deliberate, it will be very, very purposeful. God's judgment is absolutely just. When justice comes into contact with unrighteousness, it is forced to express itself in judgment. And it happens all day, every day, in all around this nation of ours, where in our courts of law, where someone lives a life of crime, they live a life of rebellion against society, and then they're arrested, their life comes into contact with the laws of the land, and what comes forth? Justice in the form of judgment. And so too in this world, overall, From God's perspective, the average person is living a life of crime against God. And they're doing it in His creation. They're doing it in His living room. And one day God is going to judge it and He will be absolutely righteous in doing so. In fact, He could not be holy and He could not be loving if He did not judge it one day. You can read all about this judgment this expression of God's wrath in Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19. And when you read through it again, one thing you'll walk away from, and that is, under no circumstances do I want to be on the earth when all of that stuff is unfolding. Now, the Bible also teaches that Christians, as Christians, we're going to be raptured from this earth prior to uh, the tribulation period. And so, what is the rapture of the church? Well, we're told here in in the passage that we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, notice in verse 16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. It is Him coming from heaven toward us, just as He has promised to do. Pastor Jonathan read it as a part of the Scripture reading. John chapter 14, Jesus said, Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father, And one day he is going to rise up and descend from heaven. And that is what we will see at the time of the rapture. Time of the rapture, the the one thing we will see immediately is him coming to get us. Notice in verse 16 what we'll hear. Jesus is going to shout something. And the word that's used for him shouting here, it speaks of an authoritative command. It's the kind of a command that a military officer uh, gives to one of his subordinate soldiers. So he's going to speak something with great authority at the time of the rapture. We don't know what he's going to say. That's a mystery. He might say something like, let me get you out of there. I don't know what he's going to say. 
but we'll recognize it when he uh, does. And then there's going to be the added communication, we're told, of an archangel. And in the mix, there's going to be the trumpet of God. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, trumpets were a symbol of a celebration. They were associated with celebrations. They were associated with victory in warfare. So everything about this event of the rapture that we read about here, we get it from our angle. But what everything that it's communicating is this is something that heaven is very, very excited about. This is something Jesus is excited about, as you would anticipate of a groom coming to get his bride, which is what he does in, in, in the rapture of the church. Then, notice in verse 17, we're told that every Christian in the world at the time is going to be caught up or raptured into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word uh, caught up, we use the word rapture for it, but that word that's used for caught up, it carries the idea of being snatched away. It carries the idea of being seized with a great suddenness, being seized, with, with, being seized in a way that is almost violent in the force with which uh, we are pulled uh, away from here and then into His uh, presence. So you ever go sometimes... Uh, you go to amusement park or something like that. I do to just find out what all the benches feel like. I've become like my mom. So I, I don't really like amusement parks that much. I mean, I like certain ones, but the, when I was a kid, one time I got on the hammer. It was set up in the Purity parking lot in Napa. Man, I just was... I hope they tightened every bolt on this thing. And you're going around. I'd have given my pocket knife. I'd have given my rabbit's foot. A lot of good it was doing me at the moment. I'd have given anything I owned to that man to stop that ride. So I liked him a little bit, but I'm not a big fan of him. So I do a lot of watching of people, even family members, when they go on that stuff. God bless you if you like it. That's good. I'm one less person in the line. So you go to California Adventure down south. Only to cost you about 180 bucks. Enough about Disney's problems. But anyway, they got this deal there where you, you know, and a lot of other places do, where the, everybody sits down and they put this thing down and then they put this vomit cover over you, I suppose. That's what it's for. Or you don't spit out at people. You, and the thing just shoots you just as fast as can be up there. And they just think, what in the world is my family thinking? They love it. They're kicking their little legs, you know, everything. And then it, it's as if that was a, bad enough, then they drop them. This is crazy. Go find a carameled apple. It's all about food for me these days. I'm telling you, I'm just like my mom. So sad. But I think about the rapture when I think about that ride. Boom. But I mean, it's going to be so... You think how fast that's going. If you ever sat on one of those and go, well, it's going to be faster. It's a thousand times faster than that. You'll be history. You'll be gone. In the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, the time that it takes that light to go off of my eye or off of your eye, thousandth of a second... One moment we're going to be there and, and doing whatever we're doing here. Next moment we're going to be face to face with the Lord in the air. That space between the earth and, and heaven. And then the Lord takes us on into heaven. Sometimes people, they look at the subject of the rapture and all. And, and they think, that sometimes they come back and say, I looked everywhere. I got my Strong's Concordance out and everything. And I, I look for the word rapture. And you guys are always talking about the rapture and everything. And I can't, find the, can't even find the word rapture in the Bible. For us in our English translation, it's caught up in verse 17. 
The word rapture is in the Bible. But you've got to know how to read a Latin Vulgate, because it's a Latin word. The Greek word for caught up here is harpazo. Now, a lot of times you're going to take something from the English to the Greek, and if the Greek's kind of a cool name, you would cause it, you would say, hey, we're all waiting for the harpazo. Sounds a little slow, doesn't it? Say, hey, I just can't wait for the harpazo to come. I can't either. Pass me the garbanzos and the jalapenos and we'll have the salad finished. Sounds like something you put on an Italian salad. But in the, in the Latin, the word is rapturo. So we get the word rapture from it. Trust the Latins to put a little life into this thing. But that's a word that is to be caught up in the rapture of the church is when Jesus returns to catch us up to be with Him before the Father pours His wrath out on this world that's rejected His Son. Now notice in verse 17, from that time forward we'll always be with the Lord. We'll never be separated from Him again. We'll never know Him uh, through a glass darkly ever again. And then notice in verse 18 that this rapture of the church is to be a comfort to us. As we see the world get worse and worse, and the Bible says it is going to get worse and worse before the Lord uh, comes back. We see it getting worth more, uh, more and more deserving of God's wrath and His judgment. He, he knows that we need to have the knowledge and the, uh, the comfort that comes with the knowledge that He's going to take us out to be with Him before He pours out His wrath. And I think it's wonderful as we watch what's happening in the world today and in our nation today, we have the privilege of being able to encourage one another by reminding each other, he could come back today. He could come back this morning. He could come back this afternoon. Now, there is a practical effect. People think rapture, schmapture, I can get by fine without the rapture. And they just think it's this pie-in-the-sky thing that Christians believe in and, and uh, you don't need to know anything about end times or rapture to have a perfectly wonderful Christian life. I beg to differ. It's a lot, there's a, it's a lot more practical than I think we realize the belief in the rapture, the anticipation of the rapture, has a very, very practical and very, very healthy effect uh, upon our lives as Christians. That anticipation that this event could happen at any moment in time. That belief in the heart of a Christian, it produces a certain kind of Christian. And one of the things it does is it produces a hope-filled Christian, produces an a, uh, excited Christian, and I'm very, very thankful for the truth of the coming rapture of the church. I pray in the morning, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And I know that's going to happen at the second coming, but I know the rapture is going to come before that. So it reminds me as I begin the day each day, today could be the day that I get raptured out of here with everybody else that knows the Lord and we get taken into heaven. I'm thankful for the healthy influence of this hope on my own life. And I'm thankful for that same healthy influence in the church that I have the privilege of pastoring in. I don't know who's teaching end time stuff that much anymore. I know some people are, and I'm glad for it, for their voices. But a lot of the prophecy stuff's been thrown by the wayside. People don't teach this stuff anymore. And I, I hear increasingly, and it's very troubling for me, I don't, look, I don't look for fights anymore in the body of Christ. I'll fight if I have to, but I don't look for it. 
I think one of the reasons there isn't a lot of teaching on ten times is it takes a lot of work to know what the Bible says about this. You've got to know Isaiah. You've got to know Ezekiel. You've got to know all the minor prophets. You've got to know Revelation. You've got to know Thessalonians. You've got to know 1 Corinthians. You've got to know the Gospels. You've got to know a lot of the Bible to be able to teach this and not be questioned and cornered every time you do it. I don't think people are that thorough about the Bible anymore, even teachers of the Bible. But I hear end times dismissed verbally with a virtual wave of the hand. I even hear this whole ideas of end times and who needs to believe it and the rapture and all this stuff. People sniff at it. They, they dismiss it with, a, with disdain. And I don't like that. Because I know what the expectation of Jesus' return to rapture the church does in my life on a daily basis. And what he knows it is intended to produce in us, especially if we are the generation at the time that the rapture occurs, the condition of the world at that time, just described in the Bible. Some of the things, the three principal things that this belief in the Lord could come at any time and rapture us, Produces. Number one, it produces a needed influence to live a pure life. And I think that's one of the most important influences of the rapture. Is it has an influence on us to live a holy life. Why? Because we assess our decision making and our doing in the light of it by saying, Do I want to be doing this at the time of the rapture? Do I want to be found robbing a bank at the time of the rapture? Will I go up with a gun in the money bags or what? Do I want to be found drunk or stoned at the time of the rapture? And it's a super good influence. I remember years ago they had... They had a tape, they had a conference that used to go on back in Colorado, and they would kind of take these controversial issues that were going on in the body of Christ and and they would discuss them, and they would have one a, a panel that was on this side of the issue, and then the panel that was on the other side of the same issue, and they would debate and argue back and forth. And back in those days, I enjoyed that kind of stuff a lot more than I do now. And so I would never invest in an airplane ticket to go out there, but I would order the tapes. It tells you how long ago it was. There were tapes back then. I ordered the tapes. And they had this one guy get up, and he, he just poo-pooed the idea of, of the rapture. And why in the world would you take this? Yes, he knew it was in the Bible and all, but here he was. He had been raised in the church, and he had been raised in a home where that had been pounded into his head, and he just thought it was a terrible thing for a Christian before they would go into a movie theater to ask themselves, do I want to get raptured into Jesus' presence while I'm watching this? So he just scorned the whole idea. The next pastor got up afterwards, who happens to be a close personal friend, and he said what probably virtually all of us were thinking when we were listening to the tape on that. He got up and said, what's so bad about that? You think we live in a world and we're so strong as Christians that we don't need everything that God has provided us? as an influence and an encouragement to a holy life in an unholy world. We need all of that. And it's a good thing. And it's disappearing. You've got, to go, you've got an older generation 
that thinks in those terms of, do I want to be found saying this, doing this, engaged in this at the time of the rapture? There's a certain age you go under that, and nobody's thinking in those terms. And we need to think in those terms. It's an influence for holiness in our lives. John put it this way in 1 John. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, that is Jesus, we shall be like Him, talking about the rapture, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He, Jesus, is pure. The second thing that this anticipation of the rapture produces in our lives as Christians is a needed urgency. Christians fall asleep. Do you know that Christians fall asleep? Do you know why I know Christians fall asleep? I'm not talking about falling asleep in a service because you worked all night on your job. I'm talking about falling asleep spiritually is because the New Testament, Paul wrote over and over again for Christians to wake up from their spiritual sleep. And so there's that tendency on our part to just fall asleep to the things of God. And the knowledge that the Lord could return for us at any time adds urgency to our Christian service. It gives us an urgency that apparently we need. I know I need it. Apparently you need it. All of us need it. And that is to take this gospel into our city and around the world while we still have a chance before the great tribulation period. It gives an urgency in our hearts to fulfilling the great commission in our generation. The third thing that it does is that it is a source of great comfort in our lives. Verse 18, as we watch things grow worse and worse by every newscast, and it comforts us to realize that in an instant, in a moment, we will be translated from this and into the glory of heaven, and then God's plan will continue to unfold. Now, I happen to personally believe that the rapture will occur before the Great Tribulation period. And there are two, three main views that people have about when the rapture will occur. Some people believe it will happen after the Great Tribulation period, after God has poured out His wrath. They're known as post-tribulationists. And so the rapture occurs uh, just slightly before the second coming. And there are other people who are known as mid-tribulation rapturists. Uh, they're also called pre-wrath rapturists. Uh, rapturous. They believe that the rapture is going to occur um, right at the three and a half year mark, the middle point of the seven year tribulation period. And so they say, well, the really bad stuff doesn't happen until the second three and a half years. I differ with them on that. We'll get to that in a moment. But it do, the real bad stuff doesn't happen until the last three and a half years. And so he raptures us there in the middle of the tribulation period. And then there are those of us who believe in a, a pre-tribulation uh, rapture, that God removes us from this earth prior to uh, the tribulation uh, period. I, uh, I agree with a guy that I listened to uh, so many years ago when he was talking about the rapture, and he said of himself, he said, I am so pre-trib, I won't eat post-toasties. <laughs> I'm in that same category. Now, 
I want you to understand, I respect people who hold other views than I do. But I, I hold the view that I do for biblical reasons, which I'm going to share with you here in just a moment. So uh, these people who hold other views, they're very nice people, misinformed, uneducated, and the bu- just <laughs> got to keep a sense of humor on this. So, but very, very nice people. But I'm going to show you why uh, I believe that the rapture occurs prior to the great uh, prior to the tribulation period. We have some people that look and say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, none of that matters, what's the big deal, you prophecy people and all that stuff in the Bible and who cares, you know, uh, amillennial, it doesn't matter, and, uh, and then uh, premillennial doesn't matter. I'm panmillennial, I believe it all pans out in the end. Well, that's great, and I'm amused by it too, and I, but the, the fact of the matter is, how we view these things influences how we interpret Huge segments of the Bible. Vast portions of Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of the minor prophets to some degree or another. The book of Matthew, the book of Luke, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, Revelation. I mean, just on and on. It isn't some peripheral thing. It, it influences how we interpret the Scriptures and how we see God to a very large degree. Now, Number one, the great tribulation, and why I believe the rapture is pre-trib. The great tribulation is a time when God pours his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting world. But the Bible teaches clearly that as Christians, we are not appointed to God's wrath. Revelation chapter 6 um, Uh, verses 15 through 17. We've already read this passage, so I'll kind of encapsulate it. uh, Even early in the tribulation period, as early as chapter 6, all of these people of the earth said to the mountains and the rocks, fall down on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand. So it's a time of God's wrath. But the Bible teaches that as Christians, we're not appointed to God's wrath. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. For God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had into you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It would be inconceivable to me for God to pour the wrath that my sin deserved out on Jesus at the cross and then at the same time that I would have to bear that wrath also. First Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us, speaking of Christians, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be gone before His wrath's being poured out. Now, God's wrath in the great tribulation, I know I'm going to lose some of you in here. I'm good with that. I'm, I'm good working with the folks that will go all the way on this. And, and uh, no condemnation, really. So stick with me on it. And, and if you say, what in the world? When do the flying saucers show up? I've never heard so much. And the things you 
First time I come to church, I got this guy talking to me. It's okay. I'm all right. I'm right. You're wrong. Just stick with it. It all has a, it all comes to a good conclusion here. But we, if we're not appointed to wrath, that means we've got to be removed before Revelation chapter 6. Because at the end of Revelation chapter 6, you've got all these people in the world wanting to find a cave that they can find rocks that fall on them to put them out of their misery during the Great Tribulation period. And all of that began with the breaking of seven seals. And the first seal that was broken was the seal of the unveiling of the Antichrist. The, the unveiling of the Antichrist represents a part of the wrath of God. So we have to be removed before the Antichrist is even revealed. This is why I differ with mid-trib folks and pre-wrath rapture folks because they do not view the unveiling of the Antichrist as a part of God's wrath, but clearly He is, even though He doesn't do His significant damage until the three and a half year point. So He is a part of the wrath of God. Some people say, well, you know, we don't really need to leave the world in order to be spared the wrath of God. God can turn us into these, you know, super saints where we're kind of in a bubble during the whole tribulation period. So all that wrath is going on all around us, but it doesn't affect us at, at all. So we're going to be specially protected from uh, the wrath of God during the great tribulation. And a lot of times a, a post-tribulationist will look and say, uh, the, look at the 144,000. And they'll spiritualize the 144,000 witnesses to the Lord during the tribulation period and say they are a type or they are a picture of the church. The problem with that is, is that the scriptures are very clear that it's talking about an actual 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are male, they are virgins, and they are Jews. There's nothing to spiritualize there. They have a special protection. It's not talking about the church. You know, we get all upset when the Jehovah Witnesses take and spiritualize the 144,000 to make it what they want it to be. And we have to be just as careful as Christians not to spiritualize it and make it into something that clearly it isn't but because we want to make it into that. have to be careful spiritualizing the book of Revelation. I, I, I try to be. There's a warning at the, uh, the book of Revelation. And it says, if you add anything to this book, I'll add the plagues that are in this book to you. Okay? I don't want that. He's, if you take away anything from this book, I will take your name out of the book of life. All right, you got my attention in a big way not to mess around with spiritualizing the book of Revelation. 144,000 of the 144,000. In fact, far from the Bible teaching that there are going to be super saints during the Great Tribulation, the Bible teaches that the Antichrist is going to overcome the saints. And that's talking about people that come to know the Lord and become Christians after the rapture of the church. I mean, I certainly hope that concerning my wife and I, as we've shared with people and witnessed with people, the day the rapture happens and we're gone, after they get done taking all the money out of our drawers at the house, that they'll realize, hey, that's something that, we, that they talked with us about and it happened all over the world. And I think that, where'd, now where'd they keep their Bible? And, then, and get saved themselves. And the Bible says the number of pe people that will get saved and become Christians after the rapture, during the tribulation period, you can't number them. There's so many. Great, great 
number of people will be saved. I think in this vein of Jesus' promise to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, and it was a, it, that church of Philadelphia was a great church, by the way, and he said to them, and it was a promise, he said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from, not through, from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, both pre-trib and post-trib people acknowledge that this passage is pertaining to the rapture. And God could have said very, very easily to them, I also will keep you through the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole earth. He doesn't, he has a tremendous vocabulary. And instead he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. A promise to take faithful Christians out of the world. Number two in, in terms of reasons, there isn't any mention of the church in Revelation chapters 4 through 18, which have to do with the, with the tribulation period. It's interesting that the word church... Uh, spoken of, of Christians, that word church is used 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's used again uh, one time in chapter 22. But in the entire section of the book of Revelation that deals with the tribulation period, it is not mentioned one time in those chapters 6 through 19. Or someone could say, but there's the mention of saints multiple times in there. Doesn't that prove that there are Christians there? Yes, but what saints is he talking about? They are tribulation saints, those that come to know the Lord after the rapture of the church and get saved during the great tribulation period. So it seems incredible to me for the church to go through the tribulation and then not be mentioned once in the 14 chapters of the book that have to do with it. Now, number three, the purpose of the tribulation period is, supremely is to deal with Israel, not with the church. And this is where a, a great mistake is made. There's this thing called replacement theology today, where people take the Bible and everything that God says he's going to do with the Jews, they take those promises and they take all of that and they plug the church into the position of the Jews. But God is not done with the Jews yet. There is still the 70th seven of Revelation chapter 9, a seven-year period of God dealing with the Jews that is yet future. God is still working His plan with the Jews. Everyone gets saved the same way, Jew or Gentile. Nobody gets saved another way. But God is doing something with the Jews in the Great Tribulation period that has nothing to do with the church. The Jews and the church are two entirely different things. And they get all of that mixed up. It's interesting that in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 the great tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? A wonderful Irishman. That you, Jacob's a Jew. He's the father of the 12 sons that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking about Israel. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. 
In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, again talking about those 77s, which includes a final seven-year period of great tribulation, God spoke it to Daniel and referred to it as something that was going to come upon your people. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews were Daniel's people. Jesus speaks of the great tribulation and does so very much in the context of Israel, the context of Jews. Matthew 24, verse 15, let me read it to you. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And let those who are in Albuquerque flee to the mountains. Now, Albuquerque is not in the Bible. You who are in Judea, that's Jewish territory, that's Israel. Let him who is on the housetop, they live on the top of their houses a portion of each day. Not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. We don't care about the Sabbath as Christians in terms of the Saturday. This is Jewish ground. He's talking to Jews in, in all these things. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And one of the great doctrinal errors that is made today related to end times is to think that the church has replaced Israel completely in the plan of God. It's not true. Number four, the post-tribulation view does not allow for the teaching uh, that the rapture is imminent, that it could happen at any time. It doesn't allow for the, us to live our lives thinking, wow, Jesus could come back for us and rapture us at, at any time. According to the post-tribulation view, it can't happen at any time because it can only happen after the great tribulation. It happens at the second coming in their view. So as a post-tribulationist, you're not looking for the Lord to come as, a, as the next great event in, in, in history, but the looking for the Antichrist and the events that are found in, in the book of Rev Revelation. And so Jesus couldn't come back today according to uh, that teaching. <clears throat> so what do we do with 1 Thessalonians 5? <clears throat> but concerning the times and seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you, <clears throat> for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Let us not, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. None of that would make sense, the post-trib rapture. The, Jesus spoke, and he said in Matthew chapter 24, uh, that this, uh, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He said, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord is coming. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect Him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. All through the whole church history and all through the entire New Testament, uh, God was encouraging Christians to be in anticipation of this event occurring at any time. And so the post-tribulation view makes these exhortations of Jesus and the Apostle Paul to, to be vain. 
Because uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, the time of the rapture is clearly unknown to man, but we can know the time of the rapture if it is associated with the second coming. And that's the problem that a post-tribulation position has. Because Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 Daniel, God spoke and said, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. If the rapture occurs at the time of the second coming, Daniel is told here that when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that is the Antichrist at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, go into the rebuilt temple and declare himself to be God, You can take out a series of calendars and start to mark off um, uh, uh, 1,290 days, and on that day will be the second coming. And if the rapture is a part of the same event, then you know the time of the rapture, and there can't be imminence or the fact that it would happen at any time. It doesn't add up. Only the pre-tribulation rapture allows for the rapture to be an imminent daily expectation. Number five, in the passage before us, clearly this uh, teaching of the rapture is intended to comfort Christians. And I fail to see how the idea that I am going to go through the great tribulation and that the Lord is then going to come and snatch me out of the world when it's all over and there really isn't anything to rescue me from at that point in time. And, and I don't recognize how that can be a comfort. If I go to the hospital, and here is somebody, and, and this happens with some regularity. Somebody's in a hospital bed, and, you, and there are two different kinds of people in a hospital uh, room. There are people who are planning to get out alive, and then there are people who know they're not going to get out of that hospital alive. And so here is somebody that's lying on that, on that bed and they've had the diagnosis come in. There's nothing more that can be done for them and, and, and everything's uh, being, you know, laid out and we're going to do it. The, and their mind goes to, you know, well, are you, are you going to be able to keep me comfortable through this? What kind of pain am I going to be feeling? And, and all of these kind of things. And sometimes a person like me will walk into the middle of this and a lot's being processed, everything. And we talk through all that and we pray through all that. And very often, uh, somewhere in the course of it, I'll say, and don't forget the Lord could come this afternoon. Oh, that's right. That's right. It could come this afternoon. I'm thinking about all kinds of things that might not happen at all, even in my condition. And it's a great comfort to our hearts. If I came into somebody and said, hey, listen, I mean, here it is. You've got all this bad things happening to you and everything. And if you get better, you've got the great tribulation waiting for you. How are you feeling comfort? About that, There's no comfort in that. It's a comfort. He's going to come back. He's going to take us out of here. And number six, notice that, verse 17, that when we're raptured, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And that makes it completely different from the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus comes for the church. In the second coming, He comes with His church. The rapture, we get caught up to into heaven to be with him and taken all the way up uh, in, into heaven with him for the tribulation period. That the second coming, we come back with him 
at his second coming, he's going to come down, he's going to step his foot down on the Mount of Olives on the east side of, of Jerusalem, and he's going to enter in as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's going to make a short stop at the Valley of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon. takes about half a second for him to take care of business right there, and he may uh, on his way to his second coming. But they're two entirely different uh, I- events. And then finally, I close with this. A pre-tribulation rapture is likely the only thing that would have come to mind to the first century Jewish listeners, to Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, because it's only a pre-tribulation rapture that matched their culture. In the uniting of a bride and a groom. Now in our culture, when you have a wedding ceremony... We get that over and about, the ceremony, the reception, the whole thing. We get that over in a few hours. Even the most leisurely weddings in, a, in, in American culture, they can get married, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, so everybody's up, and they get all of us situated and all. Then you have the reception, and even if it goes on into the evening, the meals and the whole deal, usually wraps up in a few hours. Some of them are over really quick, depending on your budget. <laughs> but we get... We're Americans. Come on, let's get this thing done and move on to the next thing. So we move real quick. The ancient world and that Jewish culture, they moved a little bit slower. So the Jewish wedding ceremony is very, very different. In fact, you couldn't even call it a ceremony. You'd call, it'd be better to call it a progression. It was a progression of many events. Here's, here's how it would unfold. First, there was the betrothal, which included three things in those days. The prospective groom would travel from his father's house to the home of his prospective bride. He would then pay the price in order to purchase her as his bride. And then, having done that, he has established the wedding covenant or the wedding commitment. She is as good as his. Jesus did that. And that when he came into this world, he came from his father's house. He came into this world and on the cross he paid the price for our redemption for us to now become his bride. We are betrothed, Paul said, to him as a chaste virgin to one day become his bride. The second thing that the groom would then do is he would return to his father's house. He would be separated for a length of time from his bride. And during that time, he would add on to his father's house, build on to it in order to have living quarters for this new family. Again, when people got, they weren't as mobile as we are today where the kids get married and then, you know, there they are in Cleveland and you got to buy a a ticket to go see them and the grandkids all the time. They stayed pretty close to home. You added on to the house and then you had your own quarters in that house. So he would then build out the house large enough now to accommodate uh, himself and his wife in the starting of, of a new family. And... All of this is what Jesus is doing for us right now. Again, the scripture that Pastor Jonathan read and then I've read earlier, John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And here it is. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's doing. Everyone listening to him that was a Jew in those days, they are tracking with him on a Jewish wedding progression. 
Gentiles separated by culture in 2,000 years, we've got to have it explained to us, which is wonderful. The third thing that would then happen is having prepared a place for her in his father's house, the groom would then return to go get his bride. The problem is, is that the bride never knew when the groom was going to come. It's worse than that. The groom didn't know when he was going to come. Only the father made that decision. And when he felt that the place was prepared and ready, he would then give permission to the son to go get the bride. That's why when they came to Jesus and they asked him about the timing of the rapture and all, he said, that's not in my hands, that's for the father to decide. Again, it's all in line with the culture. And so, because nobody knew, the bride didn't know when the groom was coming, she had to always be waiting and have a lamp lit in case he came at night. And of course, Jesus is going to do all of this in the future, going to come for us when the Father gives him the word, and that's why we're told to be watching for him and waiting for him, because we don't know the day of the rapture. And then finally, the groom would come to her, he would take her, he would then return her then to his father's house where he would marry her, they would consummate the marriage, and then they would celebrate the wedding feast. And the wedding feast would take place for seven days, corresponding with the seven years of, of, the, great, of the tribulation period. And during those seven days, the bride would remain hidden in a, in a bridal chamber, and only after the seven days would the husband then go back and get her and bring her out and publicly present her as his bride. And that's one of the reasons that when Jesus, at his second coming, at the end of the seven years of the tribulation, we come back with him at the second coming to then rule and reign with him during the thousand year or the millennial uh, reign of Christ. And so the pre-tribulation uh, rapture is a perfect match to their culture. They would have completely recognized it as a part of the Jewish wedding progression. I think of how wonderful it is for our hearts as Christians to have that expectation that He could come and get us at any time. And not just as the world gets worse and worse, nationally and internationally, though it's good for that too, to watch the news and just to say, the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back. But also in the privacy of our own hearts and our own trials that we face in life. Relationships, marriages that are difficult, persecution for our faith, spiritual warfare, loss of job and looking for work, and so many things that we face. God knows that we need comfort to not only process the international level of things, but the personal level of things. And one of the great and needed comforts He's given to us is to live in that recognition that this great future event that is 
as sure as the Word of God could happen at any moment in time. It's good to be comforted by these words, but it's good also to do what Paul said here, therefore comfort one another with these words. The Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. Could be today. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we've seen as we've studied it this morning that this isn't just some intellectual exercise or just something that goes on in our noggins that doesn't have practical implications for how we think and how we live our lives. And we thank You for the comfort, Lord, of Your soon return for us, Jesus. And we thank You for what that rapture is going to deliver us from. And we're just as grateful as we can be. We don't want to know anything about Your wrath. But Lord, we are even more thankful for what that rapture delivers us into. We really are on tiptoes, eager to see Your face, no longer through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Lord, we don't tell You Your business. We don't tell You when to do it. Just keep us filled with Your Holy Spirit and busy about Your business and Your work and Your kingdom things in these last days. But we thank You for this comfort that You've provided to us, Lord. May we not only receive it as, as Christians in this church, Lord, but may we be quick, Lord, to share it with one another in our moments of need. And we ask it of You, Lord, in Your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.